You ever watch those home improvement shows? I do. I indulge every now and then. I don't watch them all the time, but every now and then I do. You know, uh, the network or whatever picks a family that's really deserving, a family that's been gracious and generous and made a difference in the community, and that family is living in a house that needs a little TLC, needs a little renovation. So they kick the family out, send them to Disneyland or vacation for a week or something like that, and they completely renovate the inside of the home so that when they come back, the home is uh, ready for them to live in more permanently. Now, every now and then on those shows, once or twice, the team goes in and they look at the state of the home and they say, this home cannot be renovated. It needs to be replaced. This home, uh, we, it's, it's just been, it's been infested with termites. It's got fire damage. It's got water damage. It's beyond the point of repair. We just need to delete it and rebuild. This is where Paul is going to move us today in Romans chapter 3 to this bottom line truth. And if you're jotting notes down, this is where we're headed as we continue our series in Romans. You cannot renovate your heart. It needs to be replaced. Your heart doesn't need a little bit of TLC, delete a wall here, do a little paint there, replace the trim here, replace the tile in a bathroom there. Your heart needs to be replaced. You cannot renovate your heart. It needs to be replaced. So as Paul begins to conclude this first section, the Romans are really divided into kind of four sections and he's moving towards his conclusion at the end of chapter three in this section, this is what he's doing. He's driving towards heart replacement surgery, not just a cleaning out of some arteries. And to do that, Paul is gonna bring us back to a courtroom. We've already talked about this a little bit in our study of Romans, but once again, picture a courtroom where an attorney is given opportunity to present closing arguments. The attorney has already laid out his or her case in chapters one and two in the first half of three. But now as we begin uh, verse nine of chapter three, here is the attorney's closing arguments, wrapping it all up, putting the last kind of nails in the coffin, as it were. And Paul, the attorney, is gonna lay out his case in three big sections. First, the charge. Second, the evidence. And third, the verdict. First, the charge. Second, the evidence. And third, the verdict. Now, to give us kind of a broad overview of the passage, I just want to point out where those particular sections start and stop. The charge begins in verse 9. Here's the charge. So if you're jotting down notes in your Bible, circle verse 9. You might even want to write the charge next to it. What are human beings charged with? What are individuals charged with? What is humanity charged with? That's verse 9. Then in verses 10 through, come over here to the other side, 18, Paul, or our attorney, lays out the evidence, verses 10 through 18. Finally, verses 19 and 20 is the verdict, the charge, the evidence, and the verdict. So let's begin with the charge. And what is it? Simply this, all of humankind is under the power of sin. All of humankind is under the power 
of sin. If you're jotting down notes, I would love for you to jot that down. All of humankind is under the power of sin. Paul says, what then? In, order, in other words, uh, where have we landed? What's our conclusion? In the original language, tis u, where are we at here? What's our closing argument? And then he asks a follow-up question. He says, are we Jews any better off? Now, a quick excursus here, because I do think it's important, interesting, and might help you with your own personal Bible study. This entire question here, are we Jews any better off in the original language, Greek, which your Bible is written in, is one word. That's all one word in the original language. The Greek word is proechometa, proechometa. And it, uh, it's very, very difficult to translate that word. The root word itself means surpass or experience benefit or advantage. Now, that's not difficult to translate that word into English, but our first difficulty here is the tense of the, ver of the verb. It's in the first person plural indicative, but we're not sure whether it's in the middle voice or the passive voice. Now, you might be trying to jot notes down real quick. There's no pop quiz afterwards. Don't panic, don't jot that down. Here's, here's the thing. We're not sure if it's in the middle voice or the passive voice because in the original Greek, that again, that your Bible is written in, the middle voice of that verb and the passive voice of that verb are conjugated the same way. So, Paul could be asking, are we surpassed or have we surpassed? Has someone else surpassed us? Does someone else have benefit or advantage or have we surpassed them? Do we have benefit or advantage? That's a difficult question for translators. The second question is a question of subject. Once again, it's in the first person plural, we, but who is that we? Does Paul mean we Christians or we Jews or we everyone, humanity, or we, you and me, uh, Christians at Rome? So translators are faced with just kind of this difficulty in translation. And in this particular case, the translator has made the choice that the we Paul is talking about here is Jews. We Jews. And remember, Paul has been talking about the Jews up until this point. So that's a logical translation choice. We, we would affirm that translation choice. The second choice that the translator has made is that this verb is in the middle voice. That is to say, have we surpassed? Do we have advantage? So that original Greek word, proechometha, is translated are we Jews any better off? I hope that was interesting to you as it was to me and even helps you as you read different translations of the Bible, kind of makes sense why translators land at the place they land. And Paul says, no, not at all, upentos, certainly not, not on your life once again, why? For we have already charged, once again, that courtroom language, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, this may beg the question, hey, Paul, didn't you say in chapter 3, verse 1, that the Jews have many advantages? 
not the least of which is the fact that they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. How are you saying now that we don't have an advantage, we're not better off? Paul is saying, look, Jews have advantages when it comes to their ethnic heritage or their God's covenant people or the patriarchs or uh, the oracles of God that he mentioned specifically in chapter three, and then he'll mention more of those in chapter nine. But when it comes to standing before God, none of those things put you in right standing before him. So we have not surpassed anyone else. We are all charged that we are under sin. We are all accused, everyone, Jews and Greeks. And we are under sin. That uh, language in the original is hupo hamartia. Uh, we are under the power of or the dominion or control of sin. Now, I want you to notice two things here. We are under sin. The first thing is that in the original language and in the English translation here, that word sin is singular and not plural. Very interesting. The second thing is that Paul uses the preposition under. So Paul is saying this, it's not just that we commit sins, plural. It's not just that human beings are sinners, plural. Rather, it's that we've been enslaved to sin. We are under sin. We are subject to its power and dominion. To use our illustration, termites have infested the home and it's beyond repair. Thus, man's deepest need is not a teacher to instruct him, not a therapist to help him heal, not a law to regulate him, but man's deepest need is a liberator to free us. This, by the way, is the biblical doctrine of total depravity. You may have heard that language used before. Simply put, total depravity is this. Termites have infested the entire home. That's the biblical doctrine of total depravity. The termite of sin has infested the home that is your life. Sin has permeated our entire life. Now, total depravity does not mean this. It does not mean that humankind is as bad as it could possibly be at all times. Of course, Paul would not argue this. We would not argue this. Human beings do good things. It's just that those good things are impacted by sin too. Furthermore, just by way of caveat here, I think that those who lean toward a more reformed perspective, because this doctrine of total depravity is often linked to reformed theology, have kind of gone too far with this total depravity thing at times. You know, it's kind of the total depravity means that we're worms. No, no, we're not just worms. We're worms that are eaten by worms. No, we're not just worms that are eaten by worms. We're worms that are eaten by worms that don't have any trash to eat. So they would rather eat trash than eat us. That's where we're at before God. That's also not the doctrine of total depravity. You are loved by God, cherished by God, made in his image, so much so that he would send his son because he values you above all things. The doctrine of total depravity simply says this, is that sin has permeated our entire life. Termites have infested the entire home. There's a 19th century preacher that was fond of telling this story. He said a peasant farmer had a prize carrot the best carrot he had, and he brought it to the king as a gift. And he said, King, I want to give you my prized carrot. And the king said, what a wonderful gift this is. In exchange, I would like to gift you with a field that's 10 times the size of your current field so that you can grow more carrots. And the peasant went away happy. 
A nobleman saw this happen. So he brought a horse to the king and he said, King, I'd like to give you my best horse. And the king said, thank you. And the nobleman said, wait, I saw what happened with the peasant. You gave him a field that was 10 times the size of his original field. Why would you not give me a thousand horses in exchange for my best horse? The king responded, because the difference is this. The peasant gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. You see, it's not just our actions. It's our motives. It's our heart's desire. It's our minds. Sin, in Paul's view, has found its way into every part of who we are. This is the doctrine of total depravity. If sin were the color blue, everything we do and say and think is tinted some shade of blue. The poison of sin has been dropped into the water glass and has permeated all of the water. If sin was a termite, the termites have infested the entire home. We are irrecoverable. We do not need a renovation of the heart. We need a heart replacement. This is Paul's charge. Now his interlocutor might say, okay, Paul, we get the charge. We are all under the power, dominion, and control of sin. It's permeated our entire life. Termites have infested the entire home. It's irrecoverable. What evidence, Paul, do you have for this charge? And the evidence that Paul puts forward is just extraordinary. What he does here is beautiful. He does something that ancient rabbis, first century Hebrew rabbis, used to call pearl stringing. He strings at least five, more likely eight to nine, different Old Testament texts together in chronological order, believe it or not. He strings them all together to prove, to give evidence for his charge. And I want to show you each of those Old Testament texts. This is just brilliant what Paul does. Paul begins by quoting Psalm 14. This is why he says, as it is written, Right? As it is written, this is from Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. I know that's a rough word, we'll come back to it in a minute. No one does good, not even one. So Paul begins here. He says, no one understands and no one seeks for God. Now, we talk about this sometimes in Christian circles. We've even used the word seeker, and I'm not opposed to that word. I think it's a good word, but the reality is no one seeks for God. Rather, God seeks after us. Our, the termites have infested the entire home, even our motives. It renders us unable to seek after God. It renders us unable to understand spiritual things. So God has to intervene and seek after us and provide understanding for us. Listen to what Robert Mounts writes in his commentary about this verse. He says, it is true that people may be seeking some sort of religious experience but that is not at all the same as seeking God. Scriptures teach that it is God who takes the initiative. He is the one who seeks us, not the other way around. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful that the God of glory would step down from his heavenly throne to seek after us because he values us so much, even when we were unable to seek after him? 
Paul goes on, he says, all have eklino, this word, eklino in the original language. It means turned aside as translated there. It means ignored. It means they have deliberately avoided God. Remember, we talked about this in chapter one and chapter two, rather than worshiping God as creator, they worship created things, they turned aside, they deliberately ignored him. And what did that do? It says, Paul says that they have become worthless. Woo-wee, what a crazy word there, worthless. That's a hard word to hear, isn't it? Like if I was to say to you, uh, you know, you did something wrong. You might go, okay, well, I got, okay, let's talk about it. But if I said to you, you are worthless, man, that's rough, isn't it? I mean, that's a deep, deep cut. Now, here's where the Greek can really help us. This verb, they have become worthless, is in the aorist, passive, indicative, third person, plural tense. Don't write all that down. <laughs> Here's what it means, is that the subject of this verb is being acted upon, passive voice. So what has happened? That our sin has rendered us worthless. It rendered us useless. So here's the creation story, right? We were made in the image of God, given charge and dominion in order to be fruitful and multiply and uh, a dominion over his creation to create, to have relationships with one another. And the sin, the termites that infested our home has not, has rendered us uh, uh, useless, worthless. We're not able to fulfill the very purpose for which God has made us. That's what's happening here. Sin has done that to us. We're an active sinner, but a passive recipient of what sin has done to us. Paul goes on, he says, no one does good, not even one. That's all from Psalm 14. Then Paul goes on. And here he's going to quote from three more Psalms, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, and Psalm 10. And this is what he says, three pearls here that he strings together. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now, it doesn't take a genius to see what Paul is doing here. He's talking about sins of speech. First word here in verse 13, throat, that original word in Greek is larynx, where we get our modern word for larynx. And he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He's talking about our words. And I began to think of, you know, about this this week and think to myself, why does Paul start here? You know, in his closing argument to remind us of our deep need for Jesus and for God's salvific plan, why does he start with sins of speech? Here's what I think. I think he starts here because now he's got us all cornered. You might be able to say, well, I've never done that sin, or I've never done that sin, or that one there. No, I've never done that. James chapter 3, verse 2 says this, For we all stumble in many ways. But if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able, able to bridle his whole body. Gossip, slander, 
Passive aggressive remarks, yes, those are sin. Lying, shouting, criticism, cutting sarcasms, cutting sarcasm. Each of us are guilty. And remember what Paul is arguing here. He's not arguing so much that we have sins that we commit, or he's not pushing back against the sin of speech necessarily. He's saying that our primary issue is that we are self-worshippers. We have completely ignored God, and so we feel justified in the way that we bring death and pain and destruction on others with our speech. Yikers. Because of our self-worship, we say it's okay to gossip about somebody. It's okay to slander somebody else. It's okay to talk down and demean someone else. It's, it's okay for me to do those things. And maybe we don't think that actively, but in the back of our mind, that's what we're thinking. We're worshiping ourselves. This is just evidence to Paul's charge that all of humanity is under the power of sin. Paul goes on. He's going to quote a new Old Testament book. It's Isaiah, a new Old Testament book, <laughs> a different Old Testament book. He began with the Psalms. Now he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 59, uh, verses 7 and 8. It says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Now, in the Old Testament, feet or way or path is representative of an entire lifestyle. So Paul says that our entire lifestyle, we are swift to shed blood. Now, you might not think that's you, but listen, and I think this is fascinating here, that uh, Will Durant in a book called Lessons from History wrote this. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. We are a people who goes to physical violence very quickly and very often, far too often, when we don't get our way. But again, it's more than that. It's that our greed, our self-worship, our idolatry, our desire to prevail at any cost leads to suffering and disaster. And that desire creates the conditions for destruction and pain and the shedding of blood. I think of the greed that was kind of the catalyst for the housing crash in the 2000s. People were so incredibly greedy and, and unlawful and, and irresponsible lending practices as a result of greed led to pain and misery and ruin and, and even violence in some cases. And this is just one example of what humanity has engaged in. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Keep going. Paul says, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. What Paul is pointing out here when he says way of peace, he says that our lives are marked by an unrest and a lack of genuine satisfaction. Do I need to point out consumer debt? Do I need to point out uh, shows like Hoarders? Do I need to point out the fact that some of us have six coffee machines on our counter? I love coffee. I'm not against six coffee machines. All I'm saying is that so many of those things point to a lack of genuine satisfaction, unrest in our life. We are not walking in the way of 
peace because God is the only one that can provide that. Ultimately, we have ignored him, shoved him aside. Thus, we are not walking in the way of peace. Paul finishes with Psalm 36, verse one. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the last pearl that he strings together. So Paul says the charge is this, all humankind is under the power of sin. It controls us. We live under its dominion. It's not that we have sinned. It's that we live under the power of sin. And then Paul gives us a litany of evidence, quotations from the Old Testament, these pearls that he strings together. And all of that evidence, all of those pearls points to this, that humankind is corrupt to the core. Termites have infested the entire home. The evidence says this, we are corrupt to the core. So now Paul, the attorney, is gonna wrap up his closing argument and give us the verdict. The verdict is this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now you may be asking the question, okay, Paul, I thought you were just speaking to those who are under the law. Are you just speaking to Jews? But recall what Paul has already says, said. When Gentiles, by their nature, do what the law requires, they become a law under the, unto themselves. So those who are under the law are all of us, Jews and Greeks alike. We are all charged with corruption to the very core. So now the result is this, every mouth may be stopped. We have no defense before a holy God and we are held accountable to Him. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is where Paul has been driving the entire time. We do not have to belabor this point. We'll just quote Robert Mounts once again in his commentary writes this. He says, no human being can be brought into a right standing with God on the basis of doing what the law requires. Why? Because the law makes a person conscious of sin. It reveals that we are unable to live up to the righteous requirements of a holy God. Law encourages effort, but human effort inevitably falls short of the divine standard. Listen, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. This is the verdict that Paul has been driving toward is that we stand convicted before a holy God. We stand convicted before a holy God. Our mouths are silenced. We are defenseless. There is nothing that we can argue back. We are convicted by His holy standard, by His law, and all of the evidence points to that verdict. It's a fascinating little text, isn't it? It's a fascinating little text. And that verdict shouldn't be a surprise to us. This is where Paul has been heading this entire time. This is simply his concluding remarks, right? His closing argument. As I read this text this week, I kept thinking to myself, man, oh man, Paul, you are saying some pretty rough stuff here. Worthless, swift to shed blood. 
Your throat is an open grave. I'm just going, I feel like a prize fighter in round 12, you know. My, my, my arms have gotten tired. I've dropped my gloves and my opponent is fitter than me. And he's just one punch after another. And he's going for the TKO rather than just the referee calling the fight and saying, okay, it's over. You go sit in your corner. We're just going to call this fight. My opponent's just Paul, as my opponent, is just coming after me with punch after punch, with blow after blow. I'm going, stop it, stop it, stop it. And I'm thinking, gosh, I'm starting to get to know Paul. Is that really Paul's heart here? Is that his intention here? Is that how he wants us to feel? Hopeless, fatigued, put down, I had a person this week uh, share with me about this particular text. She asked this question, what would Paul's tone of voice be if he was sharing this with you and me? You know, we're just reading it, this text. I believe that Paul wants us to feel some hope here. And here's the hope. You ready? Every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. You may be asking yourself, so (laughs) my lips are zipped before a holy God. I'm defenseless. I have nothing else to say. Why is that good? Why is that hopeful? Well, once again, let's rewind to the courtroom. Anytime you see a defendant stand up in a courtroom and say, your honor, I've chosen to represent myself. Where is that going? Nowhere good. Anyone who does not hire a professional attorney, it doesn't usually turn out really good. The judge typically says, are you sure you want to represent yourself? Is this a wise choice? Usually it's not. And our professional attorney can't speak up for us unless we stop talking. Let me say it again. Our professional attorney cannot speak up for us until we stop talking, until we say, I'm not going to represent myself. I'm going to hire professional representation. Now watch this. First John chapter two, verse one, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That word advocate in the original language is parakletos. Some of you might say paraclete, that's okay, but parakletos. And it means attorney, advocate, representation. We have in Christ an attorney that vouches for us, defends us, Jesus Christ the righteous, that advocates for us. There's hope here because your extraordinarily talented and outstanding and righteous attorney can now step in and advocate for you once you zip your lip and sit down. This is the hope of Romans 3, 9 through 20. So why does this matter? Why does this doctrine that we're corrupted to the core, that termites have infested the entire home, why does it matter? A couple reasons. One, it changes how you see God. It changes how you see God. Because listen, you won't go to God to ask for a brand new heart 
unless you realize the old one is corrupted. You're not going to go to God for a brand new heart until you realize the old one is corrupted. This is where this idea that Jesus was a good man or a good teacher or a good model comes from. It comes from the idea that my heart needs a little bit of renovation, a little bit of TLC, a little bit of paint here and there, but it's not corrupted to the core. Termites haven't infested the whole thing. You see, and then we see God in an unbiblical way. We see God in a way that's not real. We see him as a primarily a teacher or an instructor or Jesus as a model for us. Until we realize that we are corrupted to the core, we're, we're not going to go to God for a new heart. Number two, it changes how you see yourself. You see, because you can't understand the glory of God until, and, and his grace. You can't understand the glory of God and his grace until you confront your own reality. See, if, if God is gracious enough to kind of top up your works, if God is gracious enough to kind of push you over the edge of goodness, that's not grace at all. But if we come to God going, my home has been infested by termites. I have no defense. My lips are zipped. All the evidence makes me stand convicted and condemned, then we understand the glory of God's grace, His extraordinary love for us. He's not here to just top up our good works, but He's here to be righteousness for us. Finally, it changes how you treat others. It really does. If you see yourself as corrupted to the core and you understand God's extraordinary grace, if I see myself and others in the same place, listen, here's the deal. When someone wrongs me, I don't speak judgment and condescension. I speak grace. When someone messes up, when you see it in the news, when you see it in your own life, when someone even dear to you wrongs you, instead of saying, stop that and do more good things so that you can balance them out, you see them as someone who is broken just like you do. You see them as broken just like you are. You see them as someone who also stands charged before a holy God. We are all under sin. And rather than speaking condescension and judgment over them, you speak grace. When you understand this, it changes you. It changes how you see God. It changes how you see Jesus. It changes how you see yourself and it changes how you treat others. Can we go back to our housing show one more time? Can we wrap back up to the termite example? <clears throat> Here's why. You know, because at the end of those housing shows, all the city is gathered together, right? All the community is gathered around this family and they're blindfolded. There's a huge bus in front of their house, right? That has the title of the show on it. And then they count back from 10, 9, 8, 3, 2, 1. Move that bus and they move the bus. What if when they moved the bus, the house was just gone? And the, and the guy who was supposed to be doing the renovations or the network or whatever said, Congratulations, your home had been infested by termites. It was no longer inhabitable, so we deleted it for you. Does that not bring you joy? It's gone. You no longer have to live in that home. The family would go, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. 
you just, you just deleted my home. I have no place to go. That would be an awful show, wouldn't it? I think Romans 3, 9 through 20 doesn't work without verse 21. Verse 21 makes it work. So when they say move that bus, it's not just that the home is gone, but a new one stands in its place. But now, Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is God's promise through his prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart. I'm not going to renovate the old one. It's infested by termites. I'm not going to just delete it and leave you to fend for yourself. God says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the glory of God's grace that he does not leave us with our lips zipped, that he doesn't leave us homeless. He doesn't just delete the old house that's infested by termites. He doesn't leave us defenseless. Rather, he gives us a brand new home to live in, a home that's no longer infested by termites, a home called grace. Instead of leaving us defenseless, he gives us a defender, an advocate, a lawyer, an attorney on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous, who advocates for us before a holy God. He doesn't leave us alone. He takes our old heart of stone and gives us a new heart of flesh. And when you get it, it changes the way you see God changes the way you see yourself and it changes the way you see others. What better way to respond to this great news of God's grace than just by coming before him in confession of our deep, deep need for him. 